0: A great miracle had been performed and witnessed by many, and the Sanhedrin were unable to deny it. And so, in a futile attempt to stop the movement, they ordered two of Jesus' disciples to no longer speak or act in His name. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The power of the state is a delegated power given to it by God, and civil government is a system instituted by Him for our good. Unfortunately, the state often exercises that authority by harsh commands and the force of arms. Keep listening as Dr. Boyce ponders the dilemma of civil disobedience for the believer and how Peter and John seized that opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus. We're studying the fourth chapter of Acts. And you may recall from our last study that as we got to the end of it, we turned to this great verse, verse 12 of the chapter, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We spent a bit of time talking about that unique name of Jesus Christ and its authority And as we began to talk about that, we saw, even though it came toward the end of our study, that that is actually the theme of the chapter, and it ties together with the miracle recorded in chapter 3. What we have in chapter 4 builds on that previous story because God had worked through Peter, John, who was with him in the healing of a crippled beggar. And the leaders of the people, who were unhappy with the performance of a miracle, threatening to unleash a power which they couldn't control, arrested Peter and John and put them in prison overnight and then hauled them before the Sanhedrin in the morning and demanded in authoritative tones, by what power or name did you do this? The name, of course, stands for authority. And that's what the word power means. By, by what authority? Where, where was the authoritative power by which you accomplished this miracle? And they answered, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that is by his authority. And then we saw that Peter, who undoubtedly perceived the connection between the two, brought it to bear on them in what was a brilliant testimony before this august body of men, and said, there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. In other words, the same power and authority that was instrumental in the healing of this cripple is the power that you need in order to be healed of the crippling effect of sin, because you are all sinners. Now, that same Theme carries through into the section that we're looking at tonight. There's actually a fourfold sequence. They say, By what power or name did you do this? That's the question. Peter and John reply, In the name of Jesus or Nazareth? That's the answer. Peter, as he begins to speak of the gospel, says, There is no other name by which you can be healed. And That's the application. And then in the passage to which we come tonight, there's the response of the Sanhedrin. They say, well, we can't deny that he was healed. We'd be a laughing stock in Jerusalem if we tried to do that, but at least we can exercise our authority. So they turned to Peter and John and said, well, whatever you do, don't preach or teach any longer in that name. And so uh, the issue was joined. The issue was is one of authority, you see, the authority of Jesus Christ who healed the cripple, and now the Sanhedrin, the state, the highest power in the land, sets itself against the authority of Jesus Christ, and they say, don't do it. And of course, Peter and John reply, as we know, because we know the story, you judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. But as far as we're concerned, we cannot but help speaking about what we have seen and heard, and so they do. Now, that's the setting. It's interesting to look at the reaction of the Sanhedrin to these men because they certainly created a problem for these leaders. Jesus before them had created a problem, and now here were more of them, just the same. They expressed the problem they had when they looked on them, and as it says in verse 13, the verse that begins our passage, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Now, it didn't mean that they were utterly ignorant. There was a sort of education that went on in the synagogue, and certainly Peter and John had that. We know that both Peter and John later wrote letters, which we have in our New Testament, and they bear... Uh, the marks of unique literary flourishes, John especially as uh, an exceptional literary achievement, and Peter's letters uh, breathe with a, with a certain vibrancy, and it certainly indicates that they were not uh, utterly unlearned. Moreover, they had spent uh, three years in the best seminary that this world has ever seen. They had been traveling around with the master himself, and he had taught them not only by precept as he unfolded the scriptures to them and uh, taught his own understanding of what God requires of us and how we're to approach him. Not only that, he lived it all out. He modeled it before them, and they had lived with him all that time, and they were slow learners. They were slow to understand, and they were even slower to measure up to the character that Christ set as a model, but they were on the way, and they'd had three good years. So it doesn't mean that they weren't Uh, learned or educated in that way. It just meant that they had not been to the rabbinic schools. That was a little bit like going to the university. It was sort of a ticket to, to doing well in Judaism. It was an open door to success. If you wanted to be somebody that everyone looked up to, if you wanted to have uh, the austerity of a judge, if you wanted to have the, the force and power of a political figure, a, a congressman or a senator or the president, well, you had to have gone through the rabbinic schools because this was a theocracy, always under Rome, but they still considered themselves a theocracy, and God gave the knowledge of his way through the scriptures, and that required rabbinic understanding. And they looked at these two men, Peter and John. They they had been fishermen before they had begun to follow this itinerant rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. They hadn't gone to the schools. And yet these two fishermen, these these rather rough characters, uh, uncouth by the standards of the Sanhedrin. uh, These men stood there without Quavering in the slightest before these powerful men, and they gave the kind of testimony we have just read about in the first portion of the chapter. Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then this is the answer. He was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We saw that that's where they really got bold. There's that comma there whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And this is how this man stands before you completely healed. And then they quoted the 118th Psalm, the stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. And they wrapped it all up in a brilliant testimony. There is salvation in no one else. And I guess they were just a little bit aghast as they saw the audacity and the boldness of these two fishermen. They were ready to overpower them. You know, the mighty will do that if they can with the unfortunate. They'll roll over them like a steamroller, and and that's what they were prepared to do, but these men were not the kind of men that were going to get run over. And so they, they looked at them, and it says that they were astonished, astonished at their courage. And then I think also they were a bit dismayed. It doesn't use that word, but I think that was part of it because it says that they took note that they had been with Jesus. Maybe they didn't know that at first. I'm not sure. It it sounds from the reading of this that it it dawned on them a little bit in the interrogation as they began to look at them intently that we've seen these guys before. Uh, These were two of the ones that were hanging around with Jesus whom we crucified, just as they said. That Jesus, oh, what a troublemaker he was. Why, he was unschooled, too. He didn't know the law. He misinterpreted it all the time. And uh, he, he had to be done away with. Such people always have to be done away with. They're dangerous. And, and we did. But now here they are again, his disciples, and they're acting just like him. You see, no wonder they were Astonished and as I suggest, dismayed. What are we going to do? Here we thought, uh, just a matter of a few short weeks ago, two months ago, that we had stamped this thing out. We had crucified Jesus and that was the end of it. And then, of course, yes, there were those stories about the resurrection. He had said he was going to be raised from the dead. It is true, we haven't been able to find his body. And so far as we know, the tomb was opened and the tomb was empty and all of that, but there must be some explanation to that. We thought we had put that down, and now here they are going about, and they're they're, they're preaching all of this again, and furthermore, they're doing it courageously just the way Jesus did. What are we going to do about that? Well, what they did is what the state always does. It just exercises its authority. They said and this was their response. Don't do it anymore. It's interesting. If, if you look at this thing grammatically, there, there's something here that you wouldn't do in good writing. You have to look at verse 16. They said, everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. That is the miracle. But to stop now what is there in the, in the text is the word it. It's a pronoun and it's indefinite, but to stop it. Now, the New International Version says this thing, but to stop it from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Now, what does it refer to? Normally, you would take it to the last main idea or noun, and that would be the miracle, to stop this miracle from spreading forward. But you see, that probably isn't what they're thinking of. Uh, people were already talking about the miracle. That thing was spreading. What they really are concerned about is the gospel. It's the, it's the preaching of the resurrection, and they, they hardly know what it is that they're trying to repress or condemn, and so they, they just refer to it as it. We don't want it getting around anymore. Let's, let's contain it. Let's squelch it right now. Let's, let's do everything we can, and so although they had put them out while well, they debated what it was they were going to do, at this point they, they bring them back in, and I guess they they lined them up and then they put on all their clerical robes and looked as austere as possible and in very solemn, serious tones, they said, don't do it anymore. And, uh, and Peter gives his response, you know, that's the same way today. We mentioned it last week when we were talking about the power of the state. The power of the state is naked power. That's all the state has. Now, it's true, as we're going to see, because I want to talk a bit about civil disobedience because that's what they did. They disobeyed the state. It is true that the power, authority the state has is a delegated authority. It's given to the state from God. But the way it exercises it is by the naked force of arms. That's all the state has. You see, you can Send representatives to Washington and they pass laws and all of that, and you can say, "Well, we have a representative form of government, and that's good, certainly better than a, a form of government that doesn't take the will of the people into consideration at all. but you know if you disobey the laws, the same thing happens as happens under any other form of government that is the the state comes in the form of the policeman or the FBI or, or somebody from the government, and and they just enforce their way by arms you're not allowed to violate the law and if you do violate the law well you're arrested or prosecuted or jailed or whatever it may be and it's by the force of the gun and of course that's what they were doing well they didn't have quite the power that they'd had in earlier days because they were a, a subject people at this point, and it was Rome that actually had the power but they'd worked out an arrangement they supported Rome if Rome supported them and uh, when they made it a pronouncement that concerned local affairs, the kind of thing that Rome really wasn't concerned about, that didn't threaten Caesar, well, then Rome would back them up and they could carry it out. And so they said, if, if, if you do this anymore, you're going to have to answer to us. We're going to arrest you. We're going to haul you in. And, of course, that's exactly what they did. Peter and John went out, they went on preaching, we come to the fifth chapter, and we find that they hauled them in again, they, and they said, didn't we tell you not to do this? And they said, well, yes, that's true you did, but we told you right then that we were going to obey God rather than you, and so they said, all right, we'll throw you in jail. And so they did, and God had to come and rescue them from the prison. But you see, that's the way the state operates. There really is no other power at the state's disposal. And so what changes the world I hope we can see this. We really ought to appreciate this as Christian people. What changes the world is not laws enforced by arms, but moral renewal in the lives of a citizenry, and that comes by God alone. That's why the only real changes that ever come into the world are by revival, as God works in His people in such a powerful way that they are changed, and because they are changed, the moral climate Well, the country is changed, and the laws follow. You see, you don't accomplish the change by passing the laws and forcing it, because that doesn't change people at all. Now, the disciples responded, as I said they did, and that raises this big question of civil disobedience. Is it right to disobey the state? I remember some years ago when Francis Schaeffer was alive, and he published the Christian Manifesto, and in it... He said in clear language that in certain circumstances, Christians were obliged to disobey the state. And a lot of evangelicals got very upset at that. I I should qualify that. A lot of white evangelicals got upset by that because they had lived through a period in which black evangelicals had disobeyed the state for the sake of civil rights, and they had kind of been against what blacks were doing in those days. They said, oh, you see... You mustn't disobey the state. God has established the state. Don't you know in Romans it says that God has established the state and you should submit to it and you should give honor to whom honor and all of that. And so they didn't like it too much. But now all of a sudden along comes Francis Schaeffer and he says, look, things have declined a great deal and uh, time may well come in this country. Perhaps it has already come. It certainly has come in other countries when Christians who are serving God rather than man are going to have to disobey the state. And a lot of white evangelicals didn't like it. And yet, you see, they they were wrong in that, because if you ever find yourself saying in categorical terms, I must do whatever the state says I must do, then you are making the state into your God, because unless the state is equivalent with God and expressing always the perfect will of God, it is inevitable that in different situations the state is going to say things that are contrary to what God says, and if you're following God, you're going to have to disobey. So, you see, it raises this whole matter of of civil disobedience. Now, let me suggest that when we're talking about the relationship between God and Caesar, which is the way the Lord Jesus Christ himself phrased it, there really only are four options, and we've seen them in history. One is the option that says, well, it's, it's God alone, and I deny the authority of Caesar altogether. Another view says, well, it's the authority of Caesar alone, and I uh, deny the authority of God altogether. And then there are people who put them together and say, well, there's God and Caesar, but but Caesar is the one you have to listen to. And then there's the fourth position, the right one, that says there's God and Caesar, but God is the one you have to listen to. It's interesting to work through those just a bit. Take the first one, God alone, and the authority of, of Caesar denied. That happened in the early church. It expressed itself in monasticism. That's really the term for it. It's a term that says this world is so corrupt and its governments are so corrupt that it's all of the devil and it has nothing to do with God. And the only thing a Christian can do in circumstances like that is retreat from it. And so in the early days of the church, there were people who did that. They moved out of the cities, out into the desert, and then because they became something of a curiosity and people flocked out to see them. Those were bad days, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to see. There wasn't any television or, or football games or Super Bowls, and uh, an anchorite out in the desert became something of an attraction. They began to flock out in the desert to, to visit these monastic figures, and, and when they became too popular, they moved further out into the desert and then further out into the desert, and eventually they got away from it all. And some of them got the idea that uh, the way to escape was to climb up on the top of a stone pillar where nobody could get to them. And one of them, a very famous man, Simon Stelites, was up on top of a pillar for about 40 years uh, living up there. They passed food up to him, and he ate it, and that's where, where he, he stayed. That, that's monasticism. That's saying the only thing that matters is God, and the authority of Caesar is absolutely illegitimate. Now, of course, we're not so extreme, uh, we Americans aren't very extreme about anything. We, we just take things as they come. We compromise right and left, and, and, and we don't do that, but we do have a form of it. It's a kind of withdrawal from what we would call civic responsibility. You know, we say, I'm not much interested in voting, because after all, they're all equally bad. None of them stand for anything. That's That's unfortunate. I mean, they may all be bad, but they're not all equally bad, and uh, it's the responsibility of, of Christians to sort their way through that, and uh, I think that we are seeing a revival of uh, civic responsibility among the evangelicals in our day. It's a very healthy thing, but you see, that's the way we, we express it. We, we sort of withdraw from things. Now, when we talk about the authority of the state being a legitimate authority, we have the example of Jesus Christ. You recall that when he was arrested and appeared before Pilate, and Pilate examined him and eventually condemned him, the Lord Jesus Christ, not once in the entire trial, suggested that the authority of Pilate was illegitimate. He didn't suggest that because Pilate was about to commit the tragic error and gross injustice of condemning an utterly righteous man, the very Son of God, that therefore, because of that, Pilate's authority should be torn from his grasp. Jesus didn't say, you know, we mustn't tolerate injustices like this in the world. We we, we need to rise up in arms against it. And that's what I'm going to tell my followers to do. I'm going to say, this is a bad world, and you you better prepare yourself for it and raise an army and get people like Pilate out of here. He never once did that. He spoke respectfully to Pilate. And he acknowledged he had authority. Pilate said in the course of the trial, "Uh, Aren't you even answering me? Don't you know I have authority to release you or or authority to crucify you? And, And Jesus did not say, No, you don't. Jesus said, Yes, you do. But he said, You have to understand that that authority has been given to you from God. And therefore, he says, The one who committed me unto you has the greater sin. You see, when he brought that matter of sin into it, he indicated responsibility, and he said, you do have authority, but it's a delegated authority. You're given authority by God, and therefore you are responsible to God for how you use it. That's what Christians have to tell the state. It's a legitimate authority. It's a God-given authority, but it is an authority given by God, and the state is responsible, even if they do not profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. They're going to answer to God one day, just as we're going to answer. Somebody will say, well, doesn't uh, the state have limits? Aren't there limits upon the state's authority? And the answer is, yes, of course there are. We see one of them here in this story. When the state tells us that we cannot preach the gospel, that we cannot speak of Jesus Christ, then we must resist it. Now, it requires some wisdom sometimes to know how to do that. We have a very unfortunate interpretation in our day of this doctrine of the separation of church and state. Originally, that meant that the state was not to establish or hinder religion, but religion and the practice of it, the free practice of it, was certainly protected by the Constitution. But today, it doesn't mean that. Today, it has been interpreted in a secular way as if to say, well, there should be no religion at all in anything that involves a state. And so the the exercise of religion has been excluded from the public schools, and it's increasingly under attack in, in different areas of our, of our national life. That's an unfortunate thing, and, and when we begin to wrestle with that and say, how are we going to deal with it, it requires a great deal of wisdom. I, I think certainly we should press for the right to pray, if we wish, in public schools. We certainly have the right to testify. We certainly have the right to meet like any other group. To study the Bible, as groups of students desire to do, and those cases, you know, have been and are before the Supreme Court. But you see, when the state says, Oh, you can be religious, but you must be religious privately, the very same thing that's going on in Russia, you know, you We we tolerate religion in Russia, but you have to do it privately. You, You can't do it publicly. You can't even teach your children. That's a private matter, and the state has a concern for the family and the children. You can't teach the children, you see. It's only a step away from that when our government is saying you can't teach it in the public schools, you can't do it here, you can't do it there. Whenever the state says that, we have to disobey, and that's what Peter and John did. They didn't deny the authority of the state. The state had the right to make whatever judgments it wanted, and they appealed to that. They said, it's for you to judge. You judge for yourselves, whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And if you think in your wisdom that we should obey you rather than obey what God has told us, then you must exercise your authority, your punitive power appropriately. But you see, as far as we're concerned, God has told us to do something, and so we're going to do it regardless of what you say. There's another area in which we have to resist the state's authority, and that has to do with morals. You see, that's an important area because you don't have the gospel without the life that supports it. And if the state says, well, here's a certain thing you have to do, then we have to defy it. You see, if we're convinced on biblical grounds that abortion is murder, then doctors must resist the state if the state says through the authority of the hospitals that they must do abortions. They have to say, I won't do it. They have to stand up against it because that's a moral issue. In Nazi Germany, the Christians faced that, and some of them, as we know, capitulated to the state. They probably said what many people say here in this country. Well, you know, Romans 13 says you should obey, and so they did it. But not everybody. Some stood up against it. Martin Niemöller was one who did. He preached against it strongly, against the Nazi doctrines, and he was imprisoned because he spoke out against the state. A, a pastor friend came to him when he was in jail. And tried to remonstrate with him. Tried to say that if he just just wouldn't preach about certain things, you know, he go ahead and preach the gospel, but but leave, leave out these these moral things that you're concerned with that have to do with Jewish people and minorities and, and all of that. Just, just leave that out. They'll let you out out of prison. He, he went all through that, and then he wrapped it up by saying to Martin Niemoller, "So why are you in jail?" And Niemoller said to him, "Why aren't you in jail?" See, Niemöller was right, because in that situation, to avoid speaking to the moral issue was treason to the cause of Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about these options, the option of God alone is illegitimate. Now there's a second option, and that is the option that says Caesar alone pushes God out of the picture. We ought to understand that because that's the option of our day. That's secularism. It's not the kind of thing that says, as I pointed out a moment ago, that you can't practice your religion. Oh, sure you can. I mean, you can practice any kind of quirky thing you want to do, as long as it's between consenting adults. You can be religious. But, uh, but you mustn't, uh, mustn't bring it out of the closet in any way. You just keep it there in the reservation, because in this world, in this real world, Caesar is the only thing that matters. That's a very foolish thing for any state to do. You know, even in the Middle Ages when they weren't very Christian, Christian in name only, they at least recognized that there was value in being able to appeal to God. You see, we recognize it even secularly. We we have in this country what we call a system of checks and balances, that is, between the various branches of the government. Uh, The president can propose programs, but the programs don't get underway unless Congress funds them. Congress can pass laws, but the laws don't go anywhere if the Supreme Court declares them unconstitutional. Uh, The president can appoint Supreme Court justices, but the Congress can impeach the president, and, and so on. Each branch of the government has checks on the other branches. And as we look back to our Constitution and the writing of it, and by the way, in 1987 we're coming up on the 200th anniversary of the Constitution, we look back to something that was very wisely constructed. We are greatly blessed having a document like that because our founding fathers, recognizing the corruption of the human heart, says it's not wise to have all the power in one branch of government. And so we have to have various branches that uh, that keep a check on one another. If one goes astray, two can always handle it. And so they do. We saw that in Watergate. That's the way uh, it operated. We recognize that secularly. We should also recognize it spiritually. You see, when you push God out of the picture, you really get into trouble because even if you have three branches of government and they're supposed to check one another, what happens if all three branches get together to establish a state that has no room for... God or for biblical morality. Well, you have God in the picture, you can always call the state to account, and it's the job of the church to do that. But if you push God out, you're at the mercy of your governors. Well, there's a third option, and that is the option of recognizing the authority of both God and Caesar, but in practice and perhaps sometimes also in theory, allowing Caesar to be dominant. This is what ruined Pilate in the case of the trial of Jesus Christ. Uh, Pilate was no Jew. He didn't know the Jewish God. He certainly wasn't a Christian. He didn't really believe in Jesus Christ, no indication that he had any deep kind of religion at all, but he had sort of a, a pagan superstition. Because when he saw Christ and recognized that he was dealing with an extraordinary kind of man, he was, was just sort of afraid that maybe he was one of the gods, you know, in the way the Romans and the Greeks thought about those things. And he knew that it was bad to get the gods angry at you, because if you get the gods angry at you, they zap you, and you never know how they're going to do that, why mythology is full of that sort of thing. And, and here he was about to condemn Jesus, and what if Jesus was a god or half a god or a quarter of a god, even a tiny little bit of a god? And what if Jesus would zap him? And so he did everything he could to try to get Jesus excused. Certainly he recognized a a moral, spiritual something in the universe. But Pilate's problem, you see, is that he was far more afraid of Caesar than he was of any spiritual reality. We're told in the story that Pilate was afraid of three things. When he stood before Jesus, he was afraid of Jesus— because there was a man who was superior to him in character. He knew that Jesus had something he didn't have, and so he's afraid of that, especially if he was a god. And then we're told, uh, secondly, that Pilate was afraid of the people. He wanted to do the right thing, but the people seemed to be so united in their desire to have Jesus crucified, he eventually, you know, gave in to them. But most of all, Pilate was afraid of Caesar. And that's how they got to him in the end. They said to him, you know, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. And he said to himself, oh my goodness, what if they tell on me to Caesar? He had right to be afraid. Caesar was no man to monkey around with and in the end he did get in trouble with Caesar and he was banished, he was sent away from his post, he finally died in some remote area of, of France somewhere. But you see, it was because he puts Caesar above God that Pilate made that dreadful tragic mistake and that is the thing that he is known for and will be known for throughout history Now, see the the first option God alone is monasticism the second option Caesar alone is secularism the third option God and Caesar but Caesar and the dominant position is the position of cowards no one who recognizes the authority of God at all would dare to subject the authority of God to any human authority. And so when we do, it's because we're cowards or afraid what man might do unto us. Well, it brings us to the fourth option. And the fourth option is God and Caesar, but with God dominant. And it's what we've been talking about. State has a legitimate authority. That's why Paul writes as he does in Romans. In the 13th chapter, he says God has established the state, but the state isn't established autonomously any more than you and I are autonomous. We're given certain measures of authority. Elders in the church have authority. Parents in the family have authority. Employers have a certain measure of authority. Police have authority. The state has authority. There's all kinds of authority, but none of that is absolutely autonomous. It's not because of who we are intrinsically. It's something that's given to us by God. And it follows from that, and it follows in the case of the state, that the state is responsible to God because God is the ultimate authority, and though we take the two and recognize the authority of the state, we have to obey God whenever the two come in conflict. And you see, that's what Peter and John did. And because of that, they were instrumental in the hands of God in launching a movement that transformed the world and is here today, centuries after this Jewish Sanhedrin passed away. And that's what you and I are called to do. We're part of something eternal, you see. Oh, we look at the United States and we say, great country, God has blessed it, that's true. We say, as the president did on television this week, I hope it lasts for 25 more years. You didn't see that, did you? They had a, a comment by uh, President Kennedy, who, who was there when Life Magazine celebrated its 25th year. And he said, you know, I have great hope for the country. I hope we last another 25 years. And so it did, and now was 50 years celebration. Reagan came on at the end of the program and said, I hope we last 25 years more. Well, I hope more than that. I, I hope the United States is around and blessed 100 years, 200 years, 300 years from now. But whether it's 200 years, 300 years, 500 years, eventually it's going to pass away. And the kingdom of God is eternal. And the question we face is, what kingdom do we belong to? Where's our allegiance? Oh, allegiance to the state. There's a certain measure of that. We're called to obey. Honor where honor is due. Taxes where taxes are due. All of that. But most of all, we are called to be citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and live for Him. How are we going to do that? Well, I think we need three things. We have to know that God is sovereign in life. You see, if we don't think that, if we think the state is sovereign, then we're going to tremble before Caesar just the way Pilate did. And Jesus didn't tremble because he knew that regardless of what Pilate did, the will of God would be done. And Peter and John did not tremble before the Sanhedrin because they knew regardless of what the Sanhedrin did, the will of God would be done and the kingdom of Jesus Christ would prevail. You have to know that God is sovereign. That's the first thing. Secondly, you have to know the Bible. Because you see, these things seldom confront us in stark black and white terms. It would be nice if they did. We look to the past and the stories of the martyrs and it seems black and white to us, but things seldom come that way. They, they creep in upon us by degrees. Secularism uh, is a, an encroaching thing. And, and so we're confronted with an issue that, doesn't seem quite black and white. It seems gray. And we begin to say, well, there's something to that point of view. Maybe maybe we ought to listen to it. And then little by little we're drawn away. You say, but I trust the sovereignty of God. Yes, yes, that's good. I'm glad you do. But you also have to know the Bible because it's only the Bible that clarifies things when the world is doing everything it can to make it gray. Where do you see black and white issues? Where do you see things that way? It's only as the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, throws God's light upon our lives. And then there's a third thing. Not only do we have to know the sovereignty of God, and not only do we have to know the Bible, we have to be willing, if necessary, to sacrifice everything in order to stand for what is right. See, it's possible to know that God is sovereign and know what's right, but when you're confronted by the demand to compromise, say to yourself, I just can't. I just can't pay that price. The ones that make a difference, the ones whom God uses are those who are willing and who in many occasions do. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is one who knew that, and he has told us about it in the Gulag Archipelago. He has a wonderful little paragraph where he says after he's been analyzing the, the fact that some of the prisoners who, who were thrown into the notorious Soviet prison system stood firm while others just fell away to pieces. And he says, why is it that some could stand up against the interrogation? And, and then he writes this. And the moment you go to prison, you must put your cozy past firmly behind you. At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. A little Early, to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die now or a little later, but later on, in truth, it'll be even harder, and so the sooner the better. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died, and for them I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious to me. And then he says, Confronted by such a prisoner the interrogation will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can win that victory. It's true of course, but what are we talking about when we talk about giving up friends and body and possessions and life? We're not called to do that. That's not where the battles come to us. They just come in little things, where you work, in school, in personal relationships, where somebody who comes at you from the world's perspective says, well, this is what you need to do if you want to get by. This is what the state says. This is what the culture says. This is what the learned, educated, distinguished people of the world are saying. And that's where you and I, have to stand. Let us pray. Our Father, we think of those who have stood to the point of shedding their blood in past ages and we say, oh, praise God for the martyrs of the church. We sometimes fondly think that it would be nice to have martyrs like that today. Perhaps we even sometimes think that we would like to be confronted as such a crisis. And yet, day by day, in little ways, the opportunity to stand for Jesus and bear a witness passes by. We're afraid of what people might say, that we might lose our reputation or be laughed at. And so, we betray our Lord. Father, that's where civil disobedience touches us. Give us grace to see the issue clearly and the even greater grace to be willing to pay the price in order that Jesus, our King, might be honored. Amen and amen. (music)